the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Jason Reed, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Rick Lee and Lee Johnson. This week, we are talking about tenure. But before we get to that, let's get some drink orders and some rants or raves. So, Lee, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? Well, you guys, it is hot as balls here in Memphis, and it doesn't look like it's going to ease up anytime soon. So I'm going to have a Sam Adams Summer Ale, my favorite summer beer. And today I am ranting about dark movies and televisions. And I want to say that I'm not ranting about psychologically dark or emotionally dark or thematically dark, but just like, actually, I can't see it dark. Oh, yes. Like, this has become such a common aesthetic choice for film and television producers to really make it practically impossible to see something. My two most recent examples are on Jason's recommendation, I started watching Silo, really excellent sci-fi series, but whole scenes where I literally cannot see what's going on. And yeah. I also just watched The Whale, the Aronofsky film featuring Brandon Fraser, which is, by the way, a just devastatingly great film, but also so dark. You know, I mean, and this is not like I'm trying to watch it in the middle of the afternoon with all the windows open. I'm trying to recreate a movie theater as much as I can in my house, and I still cannot see. So come on, guys. We've got to do something about this. It's literally <laughs> impossible to see what's going on. So, Rick, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? I am going to have a Negroni Sbagliato, which is a Negroni, but instead of gin, it has Prosecco. Ooh. Sbagliato, by the way, is the Italian word for mistake. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I am raving about Iceland. So recently, I had the opportunity to travel to Europe for a conference, and the cheapest flight I could find took me through Reykjavik. It included a 23-hour layover in each direction. And boy, I wish I had known how gorgeous Iceland is, because I would have loved to spend two more days there at least. (laughs) It is just incredible. And on the day we flew in coming back, a volcano had erupted, and the pilot nonchalantly is like, oh, and if you look out the left side of the aircraft, you will see a volcano erupting. (laughs) This was not on my flight plan. (laughs) No. But Iceland is just phenomenally gorgeous in ways that I have never seen a landscape. It was like being on the moon. Mm. Jason, what about you? What are you drinking, and are you ranting or raving? So I'm going to have what I've dubbed an unmargarita, a drink I invented when I accidentally bought margarita mix instead of lemonade. It's basically margarita mix and seltzer water, and it's pretty refreshing. Ooh. And I'm going to rave about The Mountain in the Sea by Ray Naylor. <laughs> I describe this book without giving too much away is it is both a really interesting novel of ideas. Every chapter has epigraphs from two totally made up books, one about octopus intelligence and the other about artificial intelligence. So it's an engaging book about the nature of what is consciousness. 
but it also reads as a rip-roaring adventure. There are pirates, there's mutiny, <laughs> there are drone assassinations. It is a page-turner both intellectually and as an adventure book, and it all has to do with what happens when humanity discovers a species of octopus that not only have culture, as they do, but have language and a civilization under the sea. Wow. Big recommendation for that book. Every year I have a book that I walk around praising and like giving away as gifts. I think this book might be the book for this year. <laughs> so Lee and I are waiting in the mail. <laughs> yes, <office>. seriously. <laughs> so we're talking about tenure. So Lee, what do you want to talk about? Okay. So full disclosure, all three of us co-hosts are tenured. So we're obviously economically and existentially invested in preserving it. <laughs> but it's also important to note at the outset that our interest in defending tenure, I think, are not simply self-interested and also not without some reservations. There are many good ideological reasons to defend tenure in higher education, not least of which among them is that tenure is perhaps the only institutional guard that society has established to protect its researchers, scientists, and intellectuals against the pressures of the market, and that's no small thing. But we also understand that to the non-academic public, tenure may seem like nothing more than a guarantee that haughty academics with cushy jobs can't be fired <laughs> unless, as the old adage goes, they're caught with a dead woman or a live boy. Now, as with all things that we discuss on this podcast, the question of tenure is much more complicated than it appears at first glance. Once established as an institutional protection for academic freedom, the dynamics, significance, and real-world effects of granting or denying tenure have dramatically changed as the university, the culture, and in particular, the political intervention of state legislative bodies have changed. So today we're talking about tenure get out of jail free card, or the necessary codification of a social good. So guys, here's how I thought we could approach this topic. In this first section, I'd really like for us to talk about arguments in favor of tenure. And in the second section, we can talk about arguments against tenure. I want to start with what I think is the most important argument in favor of tenure, which has to do with academic freedom. So tenure allows professors to pursue controversial research, express unpopular opinions, engage in critical thinking without fear of reprisal, and tenured faculty members can challenge prevailing ideas. They can contribute to intellectual diversity and advance knowledge in their fields largely in a protected way. So what do you guys think about the argument for tenure just in terms of academic freedom? This is like the ideal case scenario of tenure, right? And I guess I believe that on paper, but one of the things I worry about with that definition is that because tenure usually comes six years into a position, I worry that by the time people get tenure, their life with the institution has sort of sanded off the rough edges of particularity, as Hegel would say, and they've already mm. come to accept a lot of the norms and standards, and that maybe it's the person fresh out of grad school who might have the real controversial ideas and that you learn to keep quiet and be a good collegial tenure candidate, and then suddenly, boom, on year six, you're like, <laughs> here goes my secret 
I worry yeah. about that, and I feel like I don't see that as much as I would like. I worry that tenure protects people who don't need protection and doesn't protect people who do need protection. Am I going against already? When I'm the you are, you are. Sorry. I'm going to cut you off. <laughs> I'm going to cut you off and go to back to Rick in search of a Wait, defensive tenure. Do I have tenure on the show? I'm the newest <laughs> member. <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned that. The tenure board's meeting this afternoon. <laughs> Jason has only three sections of our approach to this against, against, and against. <laughs> no, I think that, as Jason said, the case for tenure, especially as it initially was made, was an academic freedom case. And this was important, for example, during the McCarthy era, mm -hmm. when professors, particularly in the humanities, but not just in the humanities, could be accused of being communist because of their research and then thrown out of their jobs and so on. But I think there's smaller levels of academic freedom. Certain departments, and again, I have humanities primarily in mind, are departments that cherish a certain approach or hold on to certain fundamental principles, and they kind of want to enforce those on every member of the department so that they don't have any outside voices. And so I think it's important to have tenure for someone to go against that, mm -hmm. to stand up and say, wait, you never thought about a feminist approach to this. You never thought about a queer approach to this. I think tenure is important for protecting that. The other thing, and this sort of mixes academic freedom with job security, is that tenure protects an individual so that they can pursue long-term research projects. Mm -hmm. I'm engaged in one right now that's going to take probably 15 years. And if I weren't sure that I would have a job day in and day out, I don't think I would ever pursue that kind of long-term plan. And so it gives me the academic freedom to pursue something that I don't necessarily have to show the results for this year. Yeah. I mean, this might be a good time to just explain to our non-academic listeners how the pre-tenure, tenure, post-tenure process works. Well, I will say first, we should acknowledge that the number of faculty positions at institutions of higher education that are either tenured or tenurable is diminishing each year. Mm -hmm. I may have made this up, but I think the most recent statistic I saw is that it's less than 30% of all academic positions are tenured or tenurable. Mm. And that's down from what used to be more than half. So we're talking about an increasingly small percentage of the academic labor force in universities. But the way that it normally works is when you're first hired, you're hired at the rank of assistant professor. And you're on a probationary period for six years is the norm. And during that probationary period, there are usually some reviews that happen along the way. Sometimes they're every other year. Sometimes they're every year to check your progress toward tenure. And then in your sixth year, you're evaluated in most universities in terms of your research, your teaching, and your service, that is, how much you pitch in to do the day-to-day -day work of the university, being a department chair, running undergraduate studies, being on various committees. At most universities, then, 
your own department decides first, and then they send that up. And depending on what kind of a college or university, there's either one or two levels of higher review. For us, it happens at the College of Liberal Arts and Social Sciences. And then again, there's a university board. And these are faculty members who look at your case and decide whether or not you have done the work to satisfy the requirements for tenure, published enough, taught successfully enough, and done enough service. And then in most universities that I know of, the president or chancellor or sometimes provost has technically the final say in granting tenure. And then once you have tenure, you can only be fired for financial exigency, moral turpitude, (laughs) (laughs) or gross incompetence. But other than that, you cannot be fired from year to year. And so it does give you this security of not being fired. Now, by the way, that doesn't say that you also get a salary increase every year Mm -hmm. because we are all evaluated from year to year based on how we're performing in all of those areas and to see whether we're performing satisfactorily and whether or not we deserve to have a salary increase. Mm -hmm. But we are guaranteed to have a job except for those three reasons. Right. And to go back to what Rick said earlier, and I do think this is an important aspect, is at my university, after tenure, you're reviewed every four years. And this gives you time to pursue longer projects. And I think one of the great freedoms that does come with tenure that I will acknowledge is the freedom to fail. Mm -hmm. The freedom to be like, oh, I was working on this book idea for a while. It doesn't seem like it's a workable idea. I'm not doing it. I published an essay version instead, that sort of thing. You have a lot more room to see where things go. People think of tenure as this job security, which it is, but a way to think about it is that we go through the longest provisional hire out there in the sense that up until tenure, you're reviewed every year at my university. Only every two years is it quote unquote actionable. They could fire you. They could let you go. But every year they're reviewing you. That's a lot of reviews before you get to tenure. So there are a lot of hoops between getting hired and getting tenure. And it doesn't end the hoops. That's the other myth I think about tenure, that no one ever looks at your teaching or your research ever again after tenure. It's not that way at my university. I've never heard of that. You still are reviewed maybe less frequency. And as Rick was saying, maybe it's tied instead to raises rather than losing your job. But the idea that you get tenure and that's the last anyone ever looks at what you do in the classroom outside is a myth, too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think in most universities, it's pretty customary for when people get tenure for them also to be promoted from, for example, assistant professor to Mm -hmm. associate professor. But, you know, there's another level of professorship, which is full professor. And that is just as hard, if not harder, to achieve. And so, just like Jason said, there's going to be lots more reviews. There's other things that you have to prove in order to advance in the profession. But yeah, tenure is a long probationary period and incredibly high standard to meet, truly. Yeah, and I just want to reiterate something Jason said, particularly for our non-academic listeners Sometimes I hear the argument that, well, once you get tenure, then you have no incentive to work, and then people just stop working and you have all this deadwood. And I think people would be surprised at how little deadwood there is Mm -hmm. 
in tenured faculty. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It could be these other levels of review and so on, but it just happens so infrequently that I think it's not even worth worrying about. Yeah, and it's worth noting that at least one of the pretty standard criteria for granting tenure is that someone has demonstrated what sometimes gets called the long arc of a career, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, it's not just I've ticked these boxes and then you can just sort of sit on your ass. You've already demonstrated that you've got things in the shoot, as they say. And also, it's hard to believe that someone would be a fantastic teacher for six years. And then the day they're granted tenure, they just are like, that's it. I'm phoning it in (laughs) for now on. Yeah. I want to talk about another argument for tenure that's more university-wide, which is that it has a tremendously positive effect on both recruitment and retention of quality faculty. So, you know, tenure allows universities to attract and retain high quality faculty members in part because the promise of tenure serves as an incentive, not only just to pursue a career in academia because of its stability, but also a career at that university. The intellectual freedom, the opportunity to make a lasting impact in your field. Tenure also can foster loyalty to an institution, commitment to an institution, which leads to institutional excellence and institutional continuity. So I do think that recruitment and retention has a lot to do with it. A lot of times when people talk about the advantage of tenure for retention, they sometimes will say, well, tenured faculty are better instructors than non-tenured faculty. I do not think that's true. I think we all have to admit that there are excellent non-tenure track faculty and non-tenured faculty everywhere. But there is something about having tenured faculty who have an investment and a commitment to the institution and to the institution's excellence That does translate to the kind of education that the students get as well. I have a recent example of just this. I have a friend who has a tenure track job. She hasn't been at her current university long enough to have gone through the tenure process and was considered for a position at a university in Texas. And this was right at the time that the Texas legislature was considering eliminating tenure at state-run universities, and this was a state-run university. And she really had to think twice about leaving a job that had tenure to go to this other university, not knowing whether next year tenure was out the window. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a concrete example of how tenure is a recruitment tool, that it really is important for someone to recognize that if I can achieve tenure, then I have a position that I'm fairly secure in, again, barring, you know, the financial exigencies of the university, moral turpitude or gross incompetence. (laughs) And so it's really key in recruiting. I think we forget, you know, in the 50s, things like health insurance were called fringe benefits because not every job offered them and the ones that did offer them were able to recruit better people such that almost every corporation now has to offer health insurance in order to recruit talented people. I think tenure is one of those benefits that is really, really helpful in recruiting faculty. Mm -hmm. I guess one of my concerns about that, and it goes back to what Rick was saying earlier about the minority who have tenure or tenure track jobs, I think that for a long time, 
people in the tenured positions have grown too accustomed to accepting this two-tiered employment structure within the university. On the one hand, mm -hmm. there are the tenure and tenure track faculty. On the other hand, there are what are referred to as adjuncts or lecturers, depending on the lingo of the place, people who are not up for tenure. It's not a possibility. And also people which should be mentioned usually are getting paid way less, depends on states, usually without things like health insurance. Right. And, you know, my worry is that as we're seeing the attack on tenure in states like Texas, Florida, the argument is made like, oh, they're not going to be able to attract talent. I think we forget how many people, because of this two-tiered system, are so desperate for employment, for things like health insurance, that it might work, as in the case Rick mentioned, where you have someone who's on a tenure track, but someone who's teaching as an adjunct, if I was an adjunct right now and I saw a job offered in a state that didn't offer tenure, but at least offered me health and, hey, maybe even with vision and dental thrown in, <laughs> I would totally go for that. Yeah, yeah, It would still be better than teaching out of a card on three different campuses, three different universities, as many people are. So one of the things we're seeing with tenure is the willingness to let this two-tier system exist is, I think, going to very much undermine our ability to defend ourselves against the attacks on tenure. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. But also, it's difficult for me to contemplate if I were an adjunct. And so let me just say, so everyone knows the lingo we're talking about, for people who are teaching at universities and they're not tenure track, they are almost never full-time. There are some full-time faculty who are not on the tenure track, but these are almost never full-time. They're paid per course at a much lower rate than tenured faculty members would be paid per course. They rarely are given benefits like health insurance, contribution to retirement, and dental and admission insurance. For me to pick up and move to Texas, knowing how fickle and petty <laughs> some academics could be. It's not just putting academics on the same level as everyone else who might move to Texas to get a job with like an oil company or, you know, a computer company or whatever. But when you add to that the vagaries of the academic market and the humanities in particular, that's an awful risky move to mm -hmm. pick up and move to Texas, even though it's a full-time job without tenure. I don't know that I would do it. Now, I say that as someone living in Chicago, and as an adjunct, I could probably put together a living by adjuncting at three or four institutions right here in the city, whereas someone living in the middle of Iowa might not have that kind of luxury. Yeah, I mean, I think this is getting back to one of the benefits that tenure provides is protection against arbitrary dismissal. And adjuncts are hired and fired arbitrarily all the time. Yeah. And to be totally honest, you know, tenures are arbitrarily denied all the time. Yes. I mean, they technically have to give reasons, but there's no real appeal process. I mean, we're talking about some fickle peacocks here when we're talking about academics. And, they, you know, it's not hard <laughs> for them to come up with reasons to dismiss someone. I love the image of a fickle peacock <laughs> that depicts some of our colleagues in the profession quite well. Yeah. yeah. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at 
www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email a audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. All right, so let's move on to the arguments against tenure. This is where Jason gets to <laughs> yes, shine. Yes, this is. So let's just start with the most obvious one, the phone-it-in argument, right? <laughs> the lack of accountability. So this argument that professors get tenure and they just become complacent, unmotivated, knowing that their job security is guaranteed, they just phone it in. Now, Rick said that that doesn't happen very often, but I'm guessing that Jason has a different view. What? Phone it in how? I mean, I think that one of the things that this is maybe more of a worry is that not so much complacent, but there's not really an incentive to keep up with new things that are happening in your field. My real concern, though, is just that I can only think of a handful of people that I've come across at the various institutions I've studied at, worked at, and so on, who have really embodied the supposed fearlessness that's supposed to come with tenure, who've been real Mm. critics of what's going on in their discipline or real critics of their institution and what's going on at their institution. Those people are few and far between. And I guess I just say that because I feel like the image of tenure and freedom suggests, quote unquote, tenured radicals, like these people are, they're everywhere. And I feel like after six years plus, I do worry that some of the radical bite gets worn off and, you know, habits become habits. And if you get really used to going along with what your institution says, because that's how you get tenure, it's really hard to suddenly become a different person days after. Although I've seen some people make some radical sartorial changes once they get tenure. (laughs) That I have seen, but I haven't seen enough of the radical shift Well, I've seen a few. I've seen people train mainstream philosophy, get interested in feminist or other types of criticism, and that has protected them in institutions that might not have hired them if they'd come in with that. But I just feel Mm. like it doesn't happen as much as I would like to see it happen. Mm. Our previous university president before this one was not the sharpest knife in the drawer. (laughs) And there were all sorts of problems with what we euphemistically called shared governance. That is the corporate powers that donate to the university and are sitting on boards of trustees and so on versus the academic side. And he basically was in a power grab. And at one point we had for the first time in, I think, the history of DePaul, I might be wrong, but doesn't happen very often, where we met the requirements to have a council of the whole. So the entire faculty was for that meeting, the faculty council. And we came up with all of these proposals and so on. And at one point, I was saying to some friends who were at the meeting, I'm like, why don't we just walk out? Mm -hmm. And they turned to me and they're like, what are you talking about? I said, well, we should just refuse to teach. And he said, well, but you know, there was that court case about being a collective bargain. I'm like, fuck you. We have tenure. Like, what? (laughs) They're going to fire all of us? Mm -hmm. And that, I think, exemplifies what Jason was talking about, that you would think that someone who really does have job security would put that on the line or use that because it's not on the line, would use that in order to 
put pressure on the university to do what's right in various cases. And I think too few of us do this, although I do have one colleague. I don't want to name her because I don't know if she wants to be named, but if she's listening, she'll know I'm talking. She has been fighting the good fight about the losing of tenure lines and the detenurification of our own university, about the treatment of adjuncts and so on. She's been intensely critical of the way our university operates, obviously post-tenure. Yeah, I agree with both of you guys. I think that I remember being on the tenure track and being very frustrated at tenured faculty for saying things privately that they wouldn't say publicly in faculty meetings. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I do not want to be that person (laughs) once I get tenure. But I don't think that for the most part, this is just dead wood lying around. You know, tenured faculty are still good teachers and on the whole, still good researchers. I will say that one argument against tenure is that it can make tenured faculty inflexible, lead to a kind of stagnation when it comes to innovative pedagogical tools, Mm -hmm. for example. And that hinders adapting to the evolving landscape of higher education. I mean, see the pandemic. You know, I mean, I had older tenured colleagues who just took early retirement. They were like, I'm not going to learn how to teach online. You know, you know right. just not. And tenure can be a kind of, what are they going to do? Fire me. Right. Argument, making it difficult to remove these people if they're standing in the way of the institution moving forward or adapting to the environment. You know, in my view, that might be a little bit more worrisome than their expertise becoming outdated or whatever. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't prevent experimentation and innovation, it certainly does not encourage it. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. That's the pedagogical side of the point Jason made earlier. Namely, there's not really encouragement necessarily built in to take up a different approach to the field I'm working in, to champion new ideas within my field, and so on. Yeah, it certainly is not an incentive to innovation. Or even adaptation. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of all of these cases in which a professor has refused to, for example, call students by their preferred pronouns. Every single one, it's a tenured professor, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, who says, like, what are they going to do? Fire me. That is worrisome. Yeah. As those faculty who have a disproportionate amount of power and influence in the running of the university, as they become more inflexible, the university itself becomes more enabled to adapt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Adaptation is really a great way to think about the dangers of tenure. And I like where that took you, Lee, because insofar as individual professors are not encouraged to adapt and therefore can use tenure to to fight against having to adapt, that makes the university less adaptive. And then that makes higher education less willing to adapt as a whole as well. Mm -hmm. When we went back after the pandemic lockdown, we had a mask mandate. And the one faculty member who refused to wear a mask while teaching was a tenured asshole. Um, And I hesitate to say, no, I don't actually, but in the business school. (laughs) You know, there are also downstream effects to this as well, this kind of inflexibility, because these are the people who are sitting on tenure committees, who Mm -hmm. are deciding whether or not to grant tenure to younger academics. And it sometimes hamstrings young academics if they're in a department or in an institution where they know if they don't toe the line, their tenure is going to be denied. Obviously, we've mentioned this already, but tenure track positions are increasingly scarce. And this creates 
barriers for early career academics who, you know, not only face fierce competition and limited opportunities, but when they get those tenure track positions often face tenured faculty who discourage fresh perspectives Mm -hmm. or innovation or diversity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of the downsides to tenure that I have seen has to do with the research requirement that gets tenured faculty to be tenured faculty. Namely that we all have to show some level of publication, either in journals in our field or books or by presenting at conferences. And there's also pressure on those venues because all of us are having to submit essays, all Mm -hmm. of us are having to submit book proposals, all of us are having to submit papers to give at conferences, and there's really not enough to go around. Mm -hmm. We could devote a whole other episode to the fact that this overproduces pieces of research that need not have been written and certainly need not have been published. But the other side of that is, I think it's incumbent on those of us who have tenure to make sure that the venues for publication and presentation are there for our colleagues on the tenure track to make sure that they have the opportunities to publish and present that we all did and maybe even struggle less than we all did. And I find many of my colleagues just are uninterested in thinking about this, what I call professional infrastructure Mm -hmm. for our junior colleagues. And frankly, I could spend more time on that as a tenured faculty member. You know, maybe I'll take a hit on research for my merit increase, but I'm not going to get fired. And so I should use that ability to spend that time constructively in that direction. And that also would lead to innovation and adaptation within the profession this time rather than within the university. But we should use tenure in order to better our institutions and our professions as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the other things tied into that is the bar keeps getting raised, not so much on tenure, but on getting hired into a tenure track job in the first place. I mean, I'm surprised now that I meet graduate students who are working on both a dissertation and like a zero book or a verso book. They have two projects going and a lot of them have published before they finish their dissertation. And this tendency to keep raising the bar where you have this real asymmetry where people who are entering the field now because of the scarcity are working their butts off compared to what it took to get a tenure track job generations ago. On the one hand, it leads to the statistics about how many journal articles are never read or only read five times. It leads to the proliferation of these journals which exist to meet this demand of publication. And they're just publishing cleaned up seminar papers. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason that no one's reading them. So there is a glut on that side. But there is also the sense that it takes a lot more work, a lot more work than I think it should to stand out in the number of people who are applying for each tenure track job. And it is unsustainable both for the profession and unsustainable for the individuals involved who are burning themselves out just to get noticed. That's not directly a tenure issue, but it's related because there are tenured people who have that one book that got them tenure. And they're looking at applications of people who have two books before even getting hired. And that generational divide is concerning, to say the least. 
Yeah, and when you keep young academics in this publisher parish maelstrom constantly, that also discourages innovation and flexibility and creativity. And yeah, so. And I've heard of grad programs that really push publication early on. I mean, grad school should not be a time for thinking about publication, it should be time for just thinking, period. But this tendency to professionalize and within Mm -hmm. the adjunct pool, one of the things that Marx points out about capital is that. As long as there are more workers to hire, the capitalist doesn't care about the individual well-being of the particular worker. They can burn themselves out. And Mm -hmm. what you do have is on the adjunct side of things, they're teaching too many classes, they're publishing too much to get noticed. But when they get burned out and can't do anymore and have come frustrated and angry, rightfully so – you just cut them off and there's a new one just around the corner. Ten new ones. Ten new yeah. ones, yes. All hoping against hope that they can stand out and make a difference. So I'm not so critical of tenure. I think it's great. I think more people should have tenure and the kind of job security that it entails. I'm more critical of the way in which this two-tier system exists within academia and I'm also critical, you know, we go back to talking about how tenured faculty don't speak up enough. Tenured faculty, in my opinion, and I include myself in this, don't speak up enough about the two-tiered system yeah. within academia. Yeah. And there's a lot of reasons why, you know, there's pressure from the university. They want you to hire more adjunct people. Adjuncts often teach the classes that no one wants to teach, mm-hmm. especially in English and literature where someone's got to teach people how to write. No one wants to teach. I shouldn't say no one. Most people don't want to do that. Or the philosophy classes that fit gen ed or whatever else. My criticism of tenure is really a criticism of the two-tiered system within academia. But I think you might agree with me. The answer to the two-tiered system is not the elimination of tenure. The solution is tenure them all. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. If you've been adjuncting for a place for six years, you should be eligible for tenure, period. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. So as we discussed, the three things that can get you fired after tenure are turpitude, (laughs) gross negligence, And financial exigency. And I feel like the first two get a lot of attention. The turpitude, because it's scandal, it's the stuff that drives soap opera stories of affairs and so on. The negligence, I think, is a lot of attention, especially on the right, the idea that if someone isn't being constantly observed and evaluated, they're just going to completely slack off. The third reason, I think, doesn't get enough attention, and that is financial exigency. Yeah. Mm. And not to get too much into this, but fun fact, in 2014, after getting tenure, I came very close to being retrenched. 
Mm. That's quite the euphemism. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I have to say this. I have to give the name. My job was saved because Bill Gavin, who has since passed, stepped up and said he would retire wow. so that my position could remain. So he really took a bullet for me. So that's why I have to say him by name. So thanks to Bill Gavin. I mean, eventually, this is a whole drama. And we'll post links to this. The university was censored for the way that it dealt with this problem. It ultimately offered faculty their positions back again. But I feel like the real issue seems to be that one thing that universities do is that they eliminate the entire department, yeah. the program. It's very different than eliminating your job. It's eliminating the position, not the person. Mm. And this is primarily happening right now at regional public universities or small liberal arts schools that are really being hit by financial situations, a sort of decline of the humanities and so on. They just eliminate entire departments. So you're tenured in the philosophy department. There is no longer a philosophy department. Thus, there is no longer tenure. Mm. The irony is, like, I feel completely protected from anything I might write or say getting me in trouble losing my job. But what I don't feel protected about, and I don't feel enough people are protected about, not just me, is just the university saying, I'm sorry, there aren't enough majors in your department. We're eliminating your department. An invocation of economic necessity with no discussion about politics or anything like that. And I think this is something we need to pay attention to because I fear it's going to be happening more and more. Well, and as you put it, Jason, one of the problems with this criterion, namely financial exigency, is how poorly defined it is. It seems clear to me that at a number of universities where they've closed programs, and I agree with you, a lot of these are in the humanities. Humanities are under fire all around the world that a lot of the financial exigency is actually incompetence on the administration's part. That, like, they've <laughs> mm -hmm. screwed up, and now they need to cover some kind of budget hole or whatever, and then they go looking for what they perceive as low-hanging fruit. They notice that most of the majors want to be in either STEM or computer science or business, accounting, majors that have practical outcomes. And so then we get cut, and I'm not sure when financial exigency was first established as one of the criterion of eliminating a tenured professor, they had this kind of thing in mind. In many universities, it's an aspect of university life in which faculty don't get a tremendous amount of input. And so these decisions come handed down, and faculty are taken unawares by all of this. Yeah, that's a very good point. In fact, I remember when this happened, and we talked about why there was such a big budget hole, one of the things that came up as an answer is that we built several new buildings but no one factored in that every new building has an increase your overall cost every year because it has right. to be heated, it has to be staffed, it has to... And it seemed like such a mission of basic math. Often the case, as you pointed out, the administrator who makes the bad decision, they're fine. Right. But the fact mm -hmm. that you have nothing to do with that decision, bear the brunt of it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is one of the characteristics of late capitalism, neoliberalism, is this manufactured scarcity. And some of it is new buildings. And the example they always use, climbing walls for students or whatever. <laughs> but much, much, much more of the financial exigency that colleges and universities find themselves in is the consequence of 
bloated administrations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this several times on the podcast, but for every five vice provosts that you have, <laughs> you're becoming more existentially at risk. Right. You know? Yeah. And these vice provosts, they grow like mushrooms after the rain. It's incredible. <laughs> right. And our department, we were down two faculty, actually more than that. So we asked to replace two faculty and that was approved. And a number of departments, their searches were canceled in the middle of it because of financial exigency. I told our chair that she should go to the dean and say that these two faculty positions are only really just one associate provost. And so Mm -hmm. if they could kill off an associate provost, then our faculty members are free. And while we're bitching about associate provosts, I mean, they don't go through reviews like we do. They don't have to prove that they're earning their money like we do. Unfortunately, the way they prove they earn their money is by holding committee meetings. (laughs) (laughs) And firing the members. (laughs) Yeah, or by cutting faculty. I think it's another way. They prove prove their ability to make tough decisions by showing how much blood they've left in their wake. Yeah, and just like in business – People get a reputation of being a tough efficiency expert by cutting workers. I think some administrators get that same reputation. But it is demoralizing to the university as a whole. Mm -hmm. The dismissal of tenure faculty really does deserve much more attention than it otherwise gets. I mean, on the whole, I think that this is all an argument again, in favor of tenure, because, you know, it's unfortunate that the university as business model forgets that it is, at the end of the day, the faculty that keep the university running. Yes, the students pay the bills, but the students are not there to eat mediocre food and climb on climbing walls and go to freshman weekend or whatever. They're there, hopefully, to learn. I mean, definitely to get a degree. So this university as corporation model forgets that to the degree that you make the faculty more and more precarious in their positions, which again, manufactured precarity, the more the university as a whole, not just your university, but the university as an institution in this country is precarious. Mm -hmm. And to bring this back to a conversation we had in an earlier segment, I was just out at a party with two people who were adjunct faculty in arts in the Chicago area. One of them has now left academia and he's trading stocks because he was working all day at one university and then part-time a couple of nights a week at a different university just to make ends meet because none of them provided him health care or benefits like that. And so he was working basically 18 hours a day just to survive. And he thought, yeah. after a while, I've had enough of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Back to what you said earlier, tenure for all. Yeah, exactly. Down with the two-tiered system, tenure for all. (laughs) I mean, I think tenure for all has to be the slogan that I would want to end this episode on. The faults that it has, I think a lot of them are imagined, and the real faults come from how unevenly it is applied across university Mm -hmm. systems and how easily it can be revoked 
And by tenure for all, we really just mean that people need something other than precarity, something other than this constant sense that their position and their livelihood and their lives are vulnerable to a whim of an administrator or whomever. It goes back to what Rick was saying earlier. Your mind changes when you know you're at a place for a long period of time. Your ability to invest in your own work and the work of your students just changes when you go from thinking on a year-by-year basis, especially because in academia, the weird paradox if you've ever been on a year-by-year contract is there's no time where you ever get to settle in like, okay, I'll worry about next year, next year, because the job applications start in the fall. So you pretty much begin with a sense of, I might not be here. I got to prepare for the future. So living year by year is like never living in the present. And to live in the present, you need to have a sense of the future. And that's what tenure provides. So tenure for all. (laughs) (laughs) Here, here. Yeah. And I mean, again, just to reiterate a point that we made earlier, although there are some well-founded concerns about tenure, most of them are over-exaggerated. Yeah. There's not a lot of people who get tenure and then sit around, like, as Rick said, Deadwood. Right. (laughs) But speaking of manufactured financial exigency, we have some financial needs here at the podcast. They're not manufactured. They're real. We run a tight ship here, lean, lean, lean ship, but we do need some help. Adjunct professors, you can cut it off now. This is not apply to you. (laughs) But everybody else, if you've got a few extra dollars that you want to kick our way to help this great conversation going, we'd really appreciate your support on our Patreon page. That's patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. There are several levels there that you can support us with. And as always, we really appreciate your help. And we don't have a single vice provost. (laughs) Not one. (laughs) Or a climbing wall. (laughs) 